Uh, This evening, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we come to the final command in uh, the household code, uh, the section that runs from chapter 3, verse 18, through to chapter 4, verse 1. In this section, Paul is telling his readers what new life in Christ looks like in the home. Uh, Paul addresses wives in verse 18, husbands in verse 19, children in verse 20, uh, fathers or uh, parents in verse 21, servants in verses 22 through 25, and then masters in chapter 4 verse 1. And uh, this is our uh, text tonight, Colossians chapter 4 verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And uh, before we go any further, let's commit our time of study to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this revelation of yourself and your will. Thank you that it addresses every area of our life. We thank you for uh, the guidance that you've given us here. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We ask for grace to go from here and apply it. Please bless our time of Bible study now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was at uh, university, I undertook a program of study that was preparing me for a career in the labour movement. And uh, some of my fellow students uh, went on to become prominent people in the movement. I've seen them... Uh, in the media from uh, time to time. I had uh, visions of uh, working as an organiser or an advocate for a, for a trade union, and I used to imagine that I'd put this verse over my desk or on the office door. Now, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now, that's what representing working people is all about, getting that which is just and equal, and uh, you masters better watch out. So I've had an affinity for this verse for a long time and uh, it's a joy to be able to open it up to us tonight. Now of course the Apostle Paul wasn't addressing 21st century industrial relations. He wasn't thinking about workers and bosses, rather he was talking about masters and slaves. The master in this verse is a slave owner. And as we uh, talked about, uh, and we talked about this in our previous study, you know, when Paul addresses servants, he was talking to slaves. I said it then, and it's worth repeating now. Although this is uh, the relationship that Paul had in mind, master-slave, it is appropriate for us to apply what we read here to our work. That's the broader context, the sphere of work which occupies a good deal of our lives. We can't disregard this command because we don't have masters and slaves today. No, we all still have to work. And there are people who employ us and supervise us, and so this command very much applies. Now that said, I do want to begin by having us go back to the original context for this command because we we need to grasp its significance. And so to the first heading in our outline, uh, the context for this command, the working life of a slave. 
We all know that a slave was the property of their master. That's the the very definition of a, a slave, and it's what makes a slave fundamentally different to an employee. An employee or a worker sells their labour, whereas a slave has sold their person or has been sold. Now for us it's an awful thought that one human being could own another human being and have absolute right over them as they would over a possession or an animal. Now the world into which Paul was writing was the Roman world and that meant Roman law and Greek culture. And this was the world into which Christianity was birthed and flourished. The fundamental idea of slavery has always been the same, okay? the concept of ownership. But the practicalities of slavery have been different across time and across cultures. Some cultures treated their slaves better than others. Slavery was more regulated in some cultures and less regulated. In Paul's day... And for the first three centuries of the church, it was the Roman model of slavery that predominated. For a slave in Paul's day, manumission was possible, but it was generally at the discretion of the master. And manumission is the term that refers to an owner freeing his slaves. Now occasionally the state, the civil magistrate, might step in and order the freeing of slave or slaves for some reason, but generally it was up to the master. That was his right. Slaves were sometimes uh, uh, given their liberty as a display of wealth. Now in order to show how wealthy and magnanimous he was, a rich man might have given some of his slaves their liberty and and made a, a big deal of it. Sometimes slaves were given their liberty as a reward for special service. They'd they'd pleased their master in some way. They'd brought some special benefit to the household. And then slaves were sometimes given the opportunity to work for or purchase their liberty. They'd come to an arrangement with their master and masters would use this as an incentive for obedience and hard work. If you do a really good job, you serve me faithfully, in so many years I will give you your freedom. Now, Something I read suggested that in Roman society it was considered very bad form to renege on an arrangement you had with your slaves. If you agreed to free them after so many years of service and you didn't, well... That was frowned upon. So manumission was possible, but not guaranteed, and it was solely at the discretion of the master, as was every aspect of a slave's working life. And this is the point I I want to get to. Uh, This brings out the significance of this command. A slave in the first century was far more dependent upon their master than an employee is on their boss today. Now we, we have a body of law that regulates our working conditions. Slaves did not. The master was the law. He had a tremendous amount of power and authority, almost absolute power. The master determined hours of work, The tasks his slave performed, the health and safety of the workplace, he determined to what extent his slave's needs were provided for, how much food they received or funds to purchase food and other essentials. He determined how well his slave was treated. 
And we have laws that govern all of these aspects of our work, laws that protect us. Our employer has to pay us a certain amount. He is to make sure our workplace is safe. There are tasks that he cannot ask us to perform. He is not allowed to verbally abuse us or physically assault us, but not so for a slave. The slave was completely at the whim of his or her master. This was the the context for the command here at the end of the household code. It it was addressed to men, and, and it was men, who had this absolute right over the lives of these people. For slaves, their quality of life depended entirely upon the way they were treated by their master. And so, for their sake, it was a great mercy that Paul said these things. And for masters, the gospel needed to touch this part of their life. Jesus intended to renew every area, every relationship. How they treated their slaves was not to be shut off from the, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. It too was to be transformed. So what were masters to do? What did new life in Christ look like when it came to the treatment of their slaves? Well, that brings us to the second heading in our outline. The content of this command, an ancient law restated. Masters are told to give to their slaves that which is just and equal. It's likely that Paul is using these terms adverbially, that is, as words to describe the way that masters are to treat their slaves. It's it's not a reference to things, give them things that are just and equal. But rather he's saying, behave towards them in this manner, justly and fairly. And of course that would include being just and equal when it comes to the provision of food, clothing, shelter and so forth. The terms encompass the whole of the master's dealings with his slaves. They were to be characterised by these qualities. The word translated just is one you've probably heard before. It's the word dikaios. Uh, It's in the family of words that are used when the New Testament talks about righteousness and justification. It means righteous. And uh, I like the definition Dr. Moo gives in his commentary. Meeting the standard set by God. In the treatment of your slaves, you need to meet the standard set by God. You need to keep God's law. Behave according to that and not according to the social norms and accepted wisdom of your culture. And the Greek word translated equal is found in only one other verse in the New Testament. It's the word isotes and it means equitable or fair. According to the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament... This word isotes was used in secular Greek philosophy to refer to the appropriate treatment of slaves in the sense of giving them what was due to them. Paul was saying, be fair with your slaves, keep your word, give them what they need, treat them decently. In the Roman world... It was acceptable to treat your slaves in all kinds of ways that were not righteous, 
Uh, you could commit adultery with your slaves. I mean, that was part of life for a wealthy man. He could, he could sleep with his slaves, male or female, and we know that pederasty was a part of the culture. Uh, you could lie to your slaves. You could be violent towards them. You could abuse them. That was all fine. But not in God's eyes. That was not just. Paul says, don't do that. Give to your slaves that which is just, righteous, acceptable to God. And treat them fairly. Don't be partial. Give them what is due. Fulfill your responsibility toward them to look after them. As I intimated in the heading for this second part of our study, this was not a new command. Now for Gentile believers it was. It marked a a massive change in the way they were to think about their slaves and treat them. But for God's people, it wasn't new. Paul, in this simple, straightforward instruction, was bringing into the life of the church, God's new covenant people, what God had said centuries before to Israel. Now, This command had its roots in the Mosaic law. God always wanted his people to treat their slaves well, to treat them better than anyone else did. Now, compared to slavery in the rest of the ancient world, slaves in Israel had extensive legal protection and were well treated by their masters. We see this in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and verses 20 and 21. We, we won't go there tonight, but just a few key points. In Israel, slaves were to be given their liberty after six years of service. In fact, their master was to send them away with livestock from his flock and provisions from his house. It was up to the slave if he wanted to make the arrangement permanent. It was his choice if he wanted to stay after the six years. There were various protections for female slaves and and obligations that masters had to fulfil if they had taken uh, a slave as a wife or or given her to be his son's wife. Female slaves were not to be prostituted or abused. If a man killed his slave, he was to be punished. This was very different to what happened in other cultures. Now, just as an aside here, under the Mosaic law, Stealing a person and enslaving them was punishable by death. It's there in Exodus chapter 21 verse 16. It's important to know this because uh, what gets thrown at us from time to time, especially by those who attack us for what we believe about homosexuality, uh, is that they say, well, the Bible endorses slavery. We all believe that slavery is wrong. So how can you defend what the Bible teaches about homosexuality? Uh, There was a famous episode of the West Wing where President Bartlett used just this line of reasoning. And I believe our Prime Minister, Mr Rudd, used it in an episode of Q&A in 2013. And uh, he was called out uh, for borrowing the line from a TV show. Now when people people say this, uh, what they usually have in mind is the transatlantic slave trade, where where people were were stolen from their their homes in Africa and forcibly taken to Great Britain, Europe, North and South America and sold. It was stealing and selling human beings. Now the truth is, the Bible, even the Old Testament, condemned this. 
He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall be surely be put to death. <laughs> God hated the transatlantic slave trade and what went on in Europe and North America. It was an abomination. He hates the human trafficking that goes on today. So, you know, people who make this argument have never read the book. It's just a glib line that ignorant people lap up. Now, God's people in the Old Testament were to treat their slaves well. They were to be exemplary among the nations. And really, that's what Paul is saying here. And as well as restating this principle... He was making the larger point that treating slaves justly and fairly was befitting for a master who was in Christ. That's what this household code is about. This is how new men and new women live. The old self is dead. The new man has come. We're alive in Christ. We put off the sins of the old life. We put on the virtues of the new. And in this context, for masters, that looked like this. Righteousness and fairness in their dealings with their slaves. There was also another dimension to this relationship that's worth mentioning. Now, if a Christian master had believing slaves, then he needed to treat them as equal participants in the fellowship of the gospel. They came together in the body of Christ as equals. There were and there are no class distinctions in the church. Chapter 3, verse 11. In the new man, there is neither bond nor free, but Christ is all and in you all. The masters had to acknowledge this and treat their slaves in all of the ways that Paul talks about in this letter. Masters had to apply to their slaves all of the one another texts that we have in the New Testament. And I'm sure that was a humbling thing to do. I also wonder if in the early church you had examples where a slave was an elder and his master was part of the congregation. Could it be that a a slave had to exercise the ministry of care and oversight towards his master? That would have been very interesting. It's also worth pondering if, as an outworking or application of this equality, did Christian masters give believing slaves their freedom? You're my brother in Christ. These social and economic distinctions are done away with in the body, so I'm going to give you your liberty. We're going to be equals as men. I I wonder if that happened. I mean, it wouldn't surprise us if it did. There are a couple of scholars I read who argue that that's actually what Paul was telling his masters to do in this verse. When he says, give to them that which is equal, they say the reference is to manumission. Uh, Literally, the text reads, give to them the equality. These scholars make much of the definite article. Uh, The equality is their freedom. Um, I don't think that's the correct interpretation. I think these scholars would like Paul to be saying that. Uh, It would uh, make Paul an abolitionist and an advocate for social justice. I don't think Paul was putting that upon masters here. But as I said, I wonder if this was how some Christian masters responded to the gospel and to the recognition of the equality and fellowship that people have in Christ. Of course, this is working on the assumption that Christian masters had Christian slaves. And I found that a number of scholars make that assumption. As I said, if this was the case, then masters had to acknowledge that their slaves were their brothers and sisters in Christ, 
and treat them as such. But if a Christian master had unbelieving slaves, then his conduct towards them needed to point them to Christ. And following this command would most certainly do that. So this is the the content of the command and it's very interesting to think about how it was applied in the first century and to think about how this whole master-slave relationship played out in the context of the local church. Perhaps we can talk more about it afterwards. There is one more element of our text that we need to consider. We've seen the context, the working life of a slave. We've seen the content, an ancient law restated. Now, thirdly and finally, we note the caution in this command, and that is, the master has a master. Now, this is really simple, isn't it? Give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. I suspect Paul understood that a master might be easily tempted to think that in relation to his slaves, he was above the law. He was accountable only to himself. He could do as he pleased. Paul corrected this view. He he cut down this false thinking with one terse line. A master is himself a servant, even a slave. Both masters and slaves serve the Lord Christ. A master was to be a good and faithful steward of the authority that he had received from his master. He was to exercise his authority in a manner pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as a father is supposed to with his children, and a teacher is supposed to with her students, and an elder is supposed to in the church. It's it's the same idea. God has entrusted you with this position, with this authority. You're ultimately working for him, so use it well. Do it well. Use this authority to bring to him much honour. I think Matthew Henry sums up this so well in his commentary on this verse and I'll give the last word on this point to him and then we'll close with some application. The quote's there in your notes. You who are masters of others have a master yourself and are servants of another Lord. You are not lords of yourselves and are accountable to one above you. Deal with your servants as you expect God should deal with you and as those who believe that they must give an account. You are both servants of the same Lord in the different relations in which you stand and are equally accountable to him at last. So how does this apply to us? None of us are slave owners. And praise the Lord, slavery doesn't exist as a formal legal institution in our society. Sadly, it still exists in practice. The term we use today is human trafficking. It often involves women and children, forced labour and sexual servitude. And it happens here in Australia, probably on a greater scale than we realise. There are many Christians who are involved in fighting against it around the world and may God bless them. For us, I think the application of this text is pretty simple. If we are ever in a position where we employ someone, we need to treat them well. In fact, our treatment should be exemplary, better than that which passes in the world. At an absolute minimum, we need to abide by the laws of the land, the laws that regulate employment, and uh, what a blessing to live in a country that has these protections. 
We need to be just and fair. We need to keep our word. We need to be considerate of the the welfare of our employees. We need to be a testimony to them, a witness for Christ. But you know, the Bible, in the Bible, sorry, God doesn't just address the master-slave relationship. He also addresses the relationship between the wage labourer and his employer, the, the kind of arrangement that we are engaged in at work. The Lord was clear that an employer is to pay his workers on time and appropriately. Uh, Listen to what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant. That is a day labourer, not a slave. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be a sin unto thee. Don't oppress the person who works for you, don't exploit him. At the end of the day, before the sun goes down, before he goes home, give him his wages, don't hold them back. If you exploit him, if you don't pay him, then I will consider it a sin. This is picked up in the New Testament, and perhaps the passage has already come to mind. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. A great text. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold... The hire of the labourers who have reaped down your fields, which of you, uh, kept back by fraud, crieth. The cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the heavenly host, the almighty avenging Christ, who comes in flaming fire, He hears the cry of those who are defrauded and exploited by their employers. It's very serious. And it emphasises to us the importance of being just and equal, righteous and fair in our dealing with those who work for us. So if, if you are in this position today or in the future, be careful to listen to what God says and be the, the new man or the new woman that you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.